Class discussions of race and racism can be difficult for all participants. In this episode, we discuss ways of building a classroom climate in which these issues may be productively explored. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Cindy Kernahan, a psychology professor and assistant dean for teaching and learning at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. She is also the author of Teaching About Race and Racism in the College Class, Notes from a White Professor, which will be available from West Virginia University Press in fall 2019. The book will be part of the Teaching and Learning in Higher Education series edited by James Lang. Welcome, Cindy. Thanks. Welcome. Our teas today are... Actually, I just have water, although I'm a big tea drinker usually. I'm drinking golden-tipped English breakfast tea. That's a new one. I know. I'm branching out. (laughs) And I have blueberry green tea today. We've invited you here today to discuss your forthcoming book, Teaching About Race and Racism in the College Class Notes from a White Professor. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah. The book is essentially my answer to a question to my earlier self. So when I started teaching about the psychology of racism about 20 years ago, when I first started here, I felt desperately in need of help because I had always wanted to teach about the psychology of racism, but it was much more difficult than I anticipated, as most teaching often is. When I was very young and new, and I wanted a guidebook, and there really wasn't one. And so I kind of have had it in my mind for a long time. And about five years ago, I started thinking seriously about how to do it. So the book is meant to be sort of a guidebook. It's got both my own experiences, but also a lot of evidence in it. I'm a social psychologist, so there's a lot of evidence from my field that I think is very easily translatable to the classroom in terms of how to learn and how to think about these issues because they're hard to teach. It's hard to teach about racism, I think. There's a lot of difficulty in it. There's a lot of evidence and also just sort of my overall philosophy about how we can teach it in compassionate but very honest ways. And so that's my overall thinking making sure that you tell the truth, but that you tell the truth in a way that doesn't alienate your students and keeps them engaged, which I think can be a difficult line to walk. (laughs) So that's kind of what it's about. It covers a lot of different things, student resistance, creating a good climate, how to take care of yourself as an instructor when you teach this sort of stuff. Those are some of the basic ideas. A few years ago with the election of Obama, there were some people who claimed that we had moved to a post-racial society. I think evidence since then has shown that that hasn't quite been the case. And I think the book is particularly well-timed because these issues are in the forefront with the news all the time. How do you begin to address issues of race in your classes? First of all, I think that idea of the post-race thing is really interesting. And I see it a lot in students. I mean, I'm just finishing up teaching this class now. We're in our last week of classes now. I have finals next week. And when most of my students, most of whom are white, came to the class, A lot of them just have this colorblind idea, which is similar to the idea of post-race, like we're done, sorted that out in the 60s, it's all good. And it's obviously not. And so they believe that we're in this equal playing field, which we're not really in, obviously. And so that's kind of a starting point. I talk about that in the book. 
this colorblind ideology that most Americans share, the first order of business is sort of getting through that. And so there's, I think, two main things that most students and most people, especially white people, need to understand. One is that colorblindness isn't really possible. Even though we think it should be the norm, it's not really the ideal. So that's one thing. But then also that there is this larger structure of what people in my field would call institutional racism or structural racism. And that's the piece that I think most white people, most students don't really get, that racism is not, as people have said, individual acts of meanness. It's also these bigger things that affect us that we don't think about. That's usually where I start. We talk about what race is and what it's not, what institutional racism is and what it's not. So I think that mostly answers your question as to where we start. And that feeling of colorblindness, is that more unique to white students, perhaps, than students of color? I think it's more unique, but it's not exclusive to white students. Students of color can often struggle with that understanding of institutional racism and structural and cultural racism as well. If you look at attitude surveys, it's not unusual for people of color to say that they don't necessarily see it in institutional or structural terms. Or you'll see surveys, they'll ask, what's more important, individual behavior or institutional laws and policies? And almost all Americans, with the exception of really recent immigrants and Native Americans, I think, say that the individual behavior is more important. And as a social psychologist, I would say, actually, they're both important. But as far as what impacts your life more, it's those big, broad, institutional, cultural stuff. So I think white students are more likely, but not only. How do you make students more aware of those issues? How can you help get them past that notion of colorblindness? One answer is a lot of evidence, but it's how you deliver that evidence. My usual way to try to get these things across is to combine a lot of statistical evidence, a lot of broad evidence with stories and examples that are representative. So I try really hard in my content like I don't just cover a bunch of psychology experiments and I don't just cover statistics. I try to have that together with individual stories of people's experiences. And I also think discussion is really key. So I don't lecture in this course really much at all. I'll do some mini lectures, but that's never the main thing that I'm doing because I think it's really important for them to read and then come to class and process all that stuff. Because the number one thing that happens, again, going back to the misconceptions they come in with, is that they realize that there's all this stuff that they didn't know. So we cover a lot of history, for example, and there's all this history of how we got to the racial categories that we have now that they're just like, no one told me this. And they need to hear other students say that too. That's part of also creating that climate is like, oh, I'm not weird or stupid for not knowing this. All these other people didn't know it either. And we talk a lot about it makes sense that you wouldn't know because we don't really teach it in our K-12 system very well for most students. So I think it's a bunch of things. I think it's what the content looks like, how the class is structured, how the evidence is presented. I think all those things matter. Many faculty members avoid talking about race, especially classes that are not about race specifically. Yeah. So can you address why faculty do that and how to help faculty overcome that fear? I think fear is the main reason. And there's different types of fear. One is I don't want to be the bad guy and I don't want to be confrontational, which is understandable. Many years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who taught in our English department, and she was teaching something called ethnic film and literature. And at the time, I was coordinating ethnic studies, and I really wanted her to teach that class again so that I could get it back into the rotation. And she just told me, we were at a party, and she said, I'm not teaching that anymore. And I said, why? And she said, 
because I have to fight with them about whether or not racism is a real thing. And I don't want to do that anymore. She didn't want to put up with the resistance, essentially. And she didn't want to have to be what she felt like was the bad guy to deal with that resistance. And so I think that's a big piece of it. If I try to tell students the truth about this stuff, they're just going to resist. And then I'm going to have to deal with that discomfort. And that's a real fear, particularly for instructors of color. I mean, there are all these national examples, right, of people getting called out by their universities for basically just telling the truth in their classes and trying to teach institutional racism. The most famous example was Shannon Gibney, who was over at Minneapolis Community and Technical College near where I live. And she was officially reprimanded by her university, basically for teaching what I teach, because she was getting pushback from white students, essentially. So I think that's part of it. Also, it creates a lot of dissonance in students, which is related to the resistance. So knowing how to deal with that dissonance and help students feel okay about themselves, even as they recognize that they hold a lot of these beliefs and they haven't really been very critical about it. So I think that all those things, all those types of fears play into why you don't see people covering it. How do you suggest faculty get over that or feel prepared for that resistance or can actually deal with that in the classroom and not feel shocked or distressed or overwhelmed? The big key, I think, is being prepared and feeling like you know how to talk about it. I've also heard a lot of instructors say, I don't feel like I have enough knowledge. For white instructors, they feel like they don't have the right or the credibility to talk about it. So that's sort of an issue. And for instructors of color, there's a whole other set of things. If you look at the research for them, there's just a ton of microaggressions that they often have to deal with. They're also seen as not being credible purveyors of this information. So that's an issue. So I think just a couple things. One, being as prepared as possible. So knowing your subject really well, being clear that when you teach the class, you're going to be clear with the students, like, this is the evidence we're going to use. So you're not coming at it like it's all people's personal experiences or opinions. That, I think, is where it gets especially hard. But if you know that you're going to come back to this scholarly base of evidence, that usually makes most of us more comfortable because that's how we roll. And people have this misunderstanding of teaching about race. Well, it's all just opinion. I once had a student say, how could you possibly give us a test on this? I mean, it's just all people's opinions. I was like, no, not quite. (laughs) There's definitely evidence there. There's psychology, there's sociology, and there's history, and we're going to use all of those things. So I think that's part of it is knowing that you have this common base of information and also knowing what to expect, how to deal with the resistance, knowing what the resistance looks like. I have a whole chapter on what resistance looks like and how it manifests in white students versus students of color and how to think about it, how to deal with it. So I think that can be helpful too. Can you talk a little bit about one or two ways that we tend to see resistance and a couple of strategies we might be able to use to overcome that? Yeah, I think in general, what you see with the research is that white students tend to be more resistant than students of color in general. They tend to be more vocal about it than students of color. One sort of broad distinction you sometimes see is that students of color are more likely particularly if they're the minority in the classroom. So if you have mostly white students, which is a lot of what I deal with, and you maybe have a few students of color, you might get more passive resistance on the part of the students of color. They sort of withdraw a little bit more because they don't want to be the one student saying things in the class and then being really looked at or targeted in that way. And for white students, they just tend to be more comfortable speaking up about this, particularly in the primarily white environments. So I think the ways to get around resistance are, one, always sort of coming back to 
the evidence that you're using. And if you set the table at the beginning of the class, that can usually work. So you can come back to, okay, here's what we're going to focus on. So for example, I've had students say in class, when we talk about wealth disparities or something, they might bring up a particular person that they know who doesn't fit that. And so what I found is useful is I don't fight with them about whether or not their story is true. I don't know the wealth of this individual family of color. So if I tell you that the wealth disparity is like 10 times, white families have on average 10 times the wealth that black families have. And they say, no, no, there's this one family I know and they're really, really rich, you know, as sort of the anecdotal thing. That's a way you see resistance manifest, right? And so instead of arguing back and forth about whether or not that family is rich, which is useless, you can just undercut that and talk about the general wealth disparity. So that's one way to do it. That's obviously pretty mild resistance. If you have consistently students questioning evidence, which doesn't happen as much as you might think, but it can happen, then I sometimes will take that out of class. For students of color, the way I try to work with the resistance you often see there, which is that sort of passive withdrawal, because again, they don't want to be targeted within a predominantly white classroom. One technique I use is to send an email really early in the semester that says something along the lines of, we're going to be talking about racism all semester. Your classmates may look to you to be a representative. Just know that I know that you don't need to do that. That's not your job. And I'm not going to expect that of you because I want to try to make those students especially feel as safe as possible. And I also recognize too, I reinforce to them, I'm a scholarly expert on this, but this is your lived experience. And I recognize that. Not saying that one is better than the other, but just I see you and I see that your experience is going to be different than the white students in the class. And so that's the way I try to short circuit that withdrawal from class as much as possible. And most students, at least so far, have appreciated that. And also just acknowledging way up front that this is going to be new to you. You're going to be uncomfortable. I put it in the syllabus. You're going to feel uncomfortable. This is not comfortable stuff to talk about. And so just know that it's coming. So those are a few things. Do you recommend having the class come up with rules of engagement or discussion on these issues? I definitely do. I mean, I have some that I think are important, but I let them drive that discussion and then I add them in if I feel like maybe they've missed them or something. And I usually have them. Actually, I think I learned this from an earlier version of your podcast. Someone was on talking about having the students work in groups to develop their rules of engagement. And so I did a little bit of that on the first day this semester, let them talk about it in small groups before we talk about it in large groups. And then I just take a picture of what those agreed upon discussion rules are and I post them up on Canvas so that that way they can come back to them. Yeah, we have a whole discussion about discussion, about what it should look like in our class, how we want to engage. One big question we always talk about is, do you want to raise your hands or just talk? How do you want to handle if somebody's upset? They always think it's going to be more contentious than it actually is, at least so far in my experience. I haven't had a whole bunch of anger or confrontation. So far, that's worked well. What are some of the consequences of not dealing with race, specifically classes or subject matter that doesn't directly indicate that race is going to be a part of the conversation? So we often hear this from faculty in math or science, or I would even say in my area, design, where it's not obvious that race might be something that should be discussed. What are the consequences of completely avoiding it? Well, obviously, it marginalizes it. So it turns it into something that only some people can do. Only some people can cover these topics. Only some people are allowed to on some level. And it's interesting you ask that because 
this has come up on my campus in the last couple of years in a couple of different ways because we have, I don't know if you all have a diversity requirement, but we do. So we have one course, American Cultural Diversity, that students are supposed to take. And there's been sort of a fight is a strong word, but argument over who should be teaching those courses. And I don't think just anyone should be teaching them, but I do think people can develop an expertise within their own field. So for example, I have a colleague and we have a very big agriculture college on my campus and she teaches soil science and crop production and all that sort of thing. So that's an area where you think, where's the race going to be at? But it's deeply in it because she's teaching these future farmers and folks working in that industry. And there's so many immigrants that work in farming. So she developed the expertise on this, and she developed a class on immigration, migrant farm workers, essentially. She and I talked about that course many times when she was in the process of developing it and starting to teach it. She teaches it regularly. And I think the advantage of that is that for the students who are majoring in that college, that's going to feel very relevant for them. And so, again, I think people have to develop some expertise to do it. And then I think they need some tools for how to teach it. But we all need tools for how to teach it because it's hard. So I think it's important because it allows people to be more motivated to see how it relates to their specific field. I also have a colleague in math who has talked a lot about trying to develop some courses around race and whiteness and math. You may recall there was a math professor, I think in Illinois, who was writing about white privilege and math and got a lot of haters online, essentially. But she did a really good scholarly analysis about the way white privilege works in math. And that stuff is really useful for students. It helps them connect in ways that are relevant to them. You mentioned using narrative. While evidence is useful, it doesn't always reach all of the students. I've been teaching about discrimination in my labor economics classes for decades, and it's remarkable how resistant people are to facts because they rely on the sort of narratives. My third cousin twice removed is this exceptional case, and it means all this evidence is wrong. But you mentioned using narrative perhaps in a constructive way to help students understand that. Could you give us some examples of that? Yeah, sure. Like the example that pops to mind right away was a really powerful piece that I used this semester on Black maternal death rates. You may know that they're wildly disparate, right? There's huge disparities when it comes to race and healthcare. And so there was a really nice piece that was actually in the New York Times magazine that was this really good combination of a personal story of one woman and her experience. She lost a baby and then she was pregnant again and dealing with that. And there have been all these famous cases. Serena Williams most famously talked about her complications during birth and not being believed by doctors. So this piece was really great because it both had her story, but then woven into it, it was a really well-written piece. It had all the statistics, the differences, and the students, I gave it to them over a two-day period because it was pretty long, and we discussed it for two days. And I just used it as this larger example of implicit bias in the healthcare industry and these larger statistics on the disparities, the wealth gap. It illustrated a bunch of things that we had already covered, and the students loved it. It was hard for them to read, but they were very engaged with it. And some of the questions I got were excellent. And I'll just say, too, I think one important thing is that when you come into a discussion, it's really important to have a base to discuss with. And so every day they have to read and post questions. I don't give like reading quizzes, but they have to post questions so that I know that they read or at least mostly read and I grade them. Because if you don't do that, then your discussion is not good at all. People don't have a base of evidence to work from. You're not going to get anywhere. And so those types of materials, I'm always looking for them where they have that combo 
of the broad statistics and also the individual stories. And yeah, I know economics, it's really tough to get those pieces. It's the same for psychology. It can be really hard to find, but they're useful. Well, certainly in immigration and discrimination in labor markets, there's a lot of examples out there and lots of good content. Yeah, there definitely is. You just got to always be on the lookout. So what happens when it's a conversation where the discussion point wasn't going to be race, but then it becomes race? There isn't a piece that you're going to discuss ahead of time, but it, it pops up in conversation. It needs to be addressed. Do you have any strategies for handling those more impromptu situations that occur? Well, for me, I think I always go back to then either being honest that I don't know enough to comment on it. What that question makes me think of are when students will bring up current examples, either that I don't know or that I don't know enough about. And so I will always try, if I can, to find some relevant psychological data or evidence or sociological data or evidence that I can bring it back to. And there have been times when if current events are happening and I feel like I don't know enough, I'll just say, I don't think we know enough. So if we have time, maybe we all spend a few minutes on our phones trying to find some information and you can do that right in class sometimes. But I always see myself as sort of a guide in terms of helping them sort through what the larger patterns are in terms of that evidence. And I think if you create a decent enough climate where they trust you, that usually can work. But yeah, the impromptu stuff can be tough, particularly if it's not your area. I think that's where, again, being prepared is hard. And I think you can just say, if this isn't your area, like, let me go and find some more. Let me go find some stuff out and then we'll come back to it. On dealing with things in the moment, how would you recommend people respond if someone makes a comment that's somewhat racist without realizing the impact of that. A really good example of that happened actually in a colleague's classroom on campus this semester, and he called me after it. I forget what the term was, but a student had used a term in class that he found offensive, and he was pretty sure other students found offensive, and he didn't really deal with it in the moment. And so he called me and asked what I thought. And I think one of the strongest ways to deal with that is oftentimes students don't realize or people don't realize that a term might be offensive or it might seem offensive. And so a lot of times, and what I advised him, and he said it worked pretty well, is to go into those conversations discussing it in terms of kind of a growth mindset idea. You know, here's this term that was used. It's offensive for some folks, but some folks might not understand why. And then maybe talking about why that is. The word colored gets used a lot, colored people. And it makes sense in some ways that white students now who are very young wouldn't know that that was an offensive term in the 50s and 60s. And so they use that term because they hear people say people of color. And then so colored people seems like a normal permutation of that, right? But it's really not. It has this very unique history. And so you could talk about, here's this history that you may not have understood. And here's this term that people didn't use to describe themselves. It was used about them. And so that's part of what makes it offensive. And it's normal that language changes and it evolves. And there's plenty of examples you can bring up around that. Like we've talked in my classes about the word queer and the way that shifted over time and language evolves. And so just sort of accepting that you're going to make mistakes. You're probably going to say things that might be offensive, but what's the mindset that you bring to that? Do you bring the mindset that it's normal and you'll figure it out? And you have to make your classroom safe for that too, so that it's not like people are being called out and told that they're saying the wrong word. We talk a lot in class about the difference between willful ignorance, like I know it's wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway, and just ignorance, like just really not knowing and coming at that. And I give examples of my own, like times I screwed up, things I've said that were wrong as a way to help them see that you're never finished. I've been doing this for like 20 years and I still make mistakes. I think that helps. 
when you're setting the classroom discussion rules, would that be a good time to bring that up? Yeah, I think so. I think that you could. You could talk about expecting people to make mistakes. In the rule setting phase, you can talk about not expecting perfection and how people will make mistakes and that's all right and ways to sort of come back from that and gently talk about it rather than calling people out. How do you handle microaggressions or other behaviors that might happen in class that aren't just like a word or whatever, but it's something that's happening or you see a pattern of behavior with a particular student? Maybe it's something that you feel like you need to handle one-on-one. How do you usually handle those kinds of conversations? Dealing with those, it's usually much better one-on-one because again, just like anybody, if you were to call someone out in class, then you're likely to just get defensiveness and nobody's going to be able to hear it. So what I've done in the past has been to talk to students one-on-one rather than to frame it as you're a bad person for doing this. It's like, this is what I'm seeing. This is the pattern that I'm seeing. This is how I think it could be perceived. And then just listening to what you hear. And you have to have a fair amount of trust with a student to be able to do that. But in general, I think whenever it comes to talking about someone's racist behavior, it's always better to focus on the behavior rather than the person. I mean, this is why when you hear national conversations about is that person a racist? I always want to throw my radio or my phone or whatever, because it's so frustrating to hear it framed in that way. Is someone a racist is not a useful question. And I'm never quite sure what that means because the goalposts always move in terms of like how we think about what that word means. So instead, focusing on the behavior, this is the pattern I'm seeing. This is a problem. And I think if you're in a moment where this would be less with students, but more with colleagues, where you're seeing this happen, And it's directed at a person who has a lot less power in that moment. So like a person of color, for example, you could step in and say, this is what I'm seeing and this is how I think about it. So you're not putting it on the person who was maybe the target of it, but you are saying in that moment, I see this and I see that this is a problem. That can be harder to do, less with students, I think more with colleagues. But in general, it's just sort of noting that it's happening and being honest about it without necessarily saying you're a bad person for doing this. Last fall, we had a reading group addressing some of these issues. And one of the issues that came up in a lot of discussions is how to address these issues with colleagues, particularly those who are evaluating you for retention, promotion, and similar issues. Or hiring. That is so hard when someone is in a position of power, because if you're the job candidate, there's just no way that you're going to be able in that moment to be able to do that. What if you're a junior faculty member on, for example, a recruitment committee, and you observe comments or behavior that seem to be biased in some way? What would you suggest to a faculty member in that position? I think you could go back to, some people call it micro-resistance, and there's been a little bit written about this in terms of how to deal with it. Again, not making about the person, but just saying like, this is what I'm hearing, this is what I'm seeing, this is how I feel about it. And so you make it more about yourself. In extreme situations, and I've certainly been in them and seen them, I mean, you could go to other people that you trust on the committee and say, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm hearing. This is slightly different, but I had a student come to me last week and say that she's in another course and she's hearing this from an instructor. And so then I was able to go to that department chair and say what's happening. So I think using your mentors, using your colleagues, if you're in that lower power position, and if you're in a higher power position in those same spaces, trying not to make the target responsible for that. If you're a man and you're seeing sexism, it's useful to just call that out. Again, not calling the person out, but just saying, this is what I'm seeing. This is the pattern. We talked about this, actually. There was an interesting anecdote in my class this last week. We were talking about this micro-resistance thing. And one of the students is a softball player. And she's on the softball team. 
according to her, there's one black softball player on the team and everybody else is white. And according to my student, whenever racist things will come up, like they'll all look at the black student to ask her, is this okay? And we talked in class about maybe that's not fair to put that on the student of color. This white student feels like she really wants to be an ally, like she really wants to be an advocate. And so we talked about well, maybe you just say what you think about it rather than asking her, is it okay? Or going to her afterwards and saying, do you feel okay about this? Because what is she going to say in that moment? I mean, she's in the minority, the black student is. And so I think that can be a useful way to think about it too. Because a lot of times we want the person who's lower in power to like excuse it and make it okay. And that's really not fair. And I think it happens just because people don't think about the power dynamics at all. They just don't think about it. It doesn't occur to them. And so trying to be more intentional about what is the power in the situation and trying to be more fair. One of the issues, if there's a small number of minorities in a class, one potential issue might be stereotype threat. What are the consequences of that? And how can we address that perhaps by making it a more supportive environment? Yeah, stereotype threat is really interesting. I know a lot about this, actually. I've given lots of workshops on this, in addition to like implicit bias and stuff too. And it's a real problem. The consequences are, there's sort of short-term and long-term. So the short-term consequences of stereotype threat is that you have students who underperform. So in a test situation or on a writing assignment, where you have a student who is feeling stereotype threatened as a result of race or gender or social class. And so then it just creates that extra layer of anxiety and stress, essentially. And it's not always apparent. You don't necessarily know that that's what you're experiencing. We know from the neuroscience research that you just have less working memory in those moments because of stereotype threat. And so the short-term threat is that you underperform. The long-term consequence is that students disengage from the area altogether. So this is why we hear, I've heard it so many times from my female advisees, I'm not a math person. I'm not a science person. And I think it happens in art as well. I don't know about design specifically, but Mm -hmm. you'll get... I'm not an art person. I'm not creative. I can't draw. I can't draw. Yeah, that's it. That one's, I think, less about race, maybe a little bit more about gender. But it's a very similar thing of like, I don't feel like I can do this. I'm not creative. And so I'm just going to withdraw from it altogether. And so you see what Claude Steele calls disidentification. So I'm just going to disidentify with that field, which is not my thing. I'm going to go get my self-esteem somewhere else. And obviously that has serious consequences if the thing you're disidentifying with is school altogether. And so that's why we see this underperformance over time with students of color and with women in math and science. The ways to get around that, there are a few. There's a whole set of interventions that social psychologists have developed that can be really powerful. I guess I would send listeners to the Mindset Network webpage. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that. It's mindsetnetwork.org. But it's a bunch of social psychologists who've gotten together to create these really pretty low-cost interventions around increasing belonging, using values affirmations, utility value is another one, growth mindset. There's a bunch of them. And there's these little tweaks that you can do in your classes to help that. The other big intervention, and you can sort of call that active pedagogy. So there's really good research that the more active your class is, that's going to be good for everybody but it's especially good for your students of color, your first-generation students, and your students who are women in math and science and engineering courses, where they're more likely to feel that threat. That, as an intervention itself, is really great. There's a ton of really nice discussions of that and studies of that that you can find in terms of active pedagogy being an inclusive pedagogy. 
Because in general, you want students to have a sense of belonging and you want them to feel included. And that's going to help to undercut that. Because really, all stereotype threat is about is about a lack of trust. So everybody thinks it's a lack of confidence in the student. It's not. They don't trust the environment to be fair. And so that's why they disengage and they pull back. And so you want to do everything you can to keep that trust. And they build more of a sense of community with their fellow students. Absolutely. I'm going to a conference in a few weeks, and one of the activities there is something called sip and paint. A friend of mine tried to convince me to do that, and my reaction was, no, the last time I painted, I think I was seven years old. (laughs) So there's that gender issue, perhaps, with the artwork thing. Creativity, yeah. You mentioned implicit bias. My labor classes are online, and one of the things I do is I have them take some of the implicit association tests and then discuss them. And they tend to be pretty comfortable discussing many of them, but they tend to be much less comfortable discussing race. Oh, yeah. But one of the things that led to some really good discussions are the association between gender and careers. Yeah. And a lot of female students remark on how surprised they are that they associate women with home activities and men with careers. But one of the things I note from the students who tend to perhaps have the more resistant attitudes towards facts in general from other discussions is that they tend to question the tests themselves and say, it's clearly set up to demonstrate a bias when that bias really doesn't exist. And those students are really hard to reach. And we could keep giving them facts, but I've never been completely successful in getting through that barrier, at least in any one course. Any suggestions? It's really tough. As a social psychologist, I feel pretty comfortable talking about the implicit association test, but it is really hard to describe well. So that's one problem with it because you try to explain, no, no, like 25 years of research. When I still had paper versions of literature, like I'd bring in my big giant folder and I'd just sort of slap it on the desk and be like, you know, they've been studying this since 1995. But like you said, the facts don't always help. One thing I think that helps with them understanding implicit associations is to depersonalize it. And I have some great podcast and book suggestions and article suggestions on how to help them understand what implicit associations are. But really, it's not about them as a bad person. And that is one way I've found to get at it. There's a a phrase that gets used by Mazarin Banaji, who's one of the test co-creators. And she talks about implicit associations as the thumbprint of the culture, which is really accurate, you know. So it's not you're a bad person, you have implicit bias, like uh, we all have it. And it's a thumbprint of the culture. You've been learning since you were a baby what's associated, what's good and what's bad. I mean, it really is that crude. It is your brain saying this group is bad. This group is good. Over and over and over again, you get those messages. So if you can depersonalize it, I think that can help a lot. I have found that using the podcasts that I have on it and some of the more newsy articles and they cite the researchers, that can be really helpful too. But yeah, if they want to criticize the test all day long. I've gotten to where I don't have them take the test until after they have a decent grounding in the science because they're very resistant to the idea. They think the test just sucks. At least those who have their preconceptions not confirmed in the way they'd like them to. Yeah, because again, they think this means I'm a bad person. They think it's the racism test. There's a King of the Hill episode. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that show, but I used to love that show. And there's an episode where Hank has to go take the racism test because he's worried that his dog is racist or something. I can't remember the whole thing of the story. But that episode is one of my favorites because it's like, okay, let's see if he's racist. And it's like, that's not the way it works, folks. I'll have students sometimes say like, we should just have like all cops and all teachers and all judges take this test and then we'd know who to hire. And I'm like, there'd be nobody left. There wouldn't be enough people left to do all these jobs. 
And I think if you talk about it in that way, it can make it so that it's not a moral failing, which is, I think, why they're so resistant. I've done something as a follow-up to doing some of the tests in my classes where I had students look at their portfolio of design work and just see who was represented in the materials that they made. And what they usually do is discover that either it's a lot of people that are just like them or that it's white and young, which some of the people in the class may not fit that particular group, but that's what they've still represented. And that helps a lot because we talk about, well, it's easier to design for a group of people that you're around all the time, perhaps. Yeah. Or you know what this particular population maybe preferences if that's a group that you're a member of. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes helps too because it kind of breaks down some of the total ownership or blaming a student for something. It becomes more of that cultural identity piece. Yeah, you can ask them like, who's most of your friends? Who's in your environment? I have them write journal entries all semester. I don't say go find the racism and tell me about it. I just say like, just tell me what you observe in terms of both race and gender. Just like, what do you see? Who's doing what jobs? Who's in what space? And that helps them too, to start to see the stuff that they just sort of take for granted because it's the water that we all swim in. We're all very segregated. And so it's, I think it's good for students to recognize that and then how that plays itself out in who you select to design, for example, and who comes into your consciousness. So again, thumbprint of the culture rather than moral failing bad person. I also do an activity in my capstone class where I ask students who are their five designers that inspire them. Mm. And then I end up with a pretty small list when we aggregate all of them together. And then I say, I'm going to ask this question again later in the semester. And I expect these lists to be really different. Yeah, that's good. Make them explicitly think about it. We always end with a question. What are you doing next? I want to write more about these issues. What I really want to do is run some workshops for faculty. I've done a couple. Most of my workshops have been on stereotype threat and implicit bias. So I would like to run more workshops on this topic in particular. Like, how do you teach about racism rather than teaching inclusively? That's fun to talk about, too. But how do you teach about race and racism? I would love to do more of that. And I would also like to write more about these issues because I think it's hard to do. And so I would like to just have more conversation. I'm also hoping eventually to maybe write a different book about inclusive pedagogy. We'll see. I'm not sure. (laughs) It's a ways off. And when is your book coming out? It's supposed to be November, I believe. November or December. Well, I know that you probably have a line of people now, though. (laughs) I really want to make sure they get their hands on your book because (laughs) there's a lot of books that deal with these issues conceptually, but not in a practical way. I could not find a lot on teaching about it. Like I said, I wanted the guide that I wish I had had for myself 20 years ago, but there's not a ton. There's a lot of good chapters on it and some edited books, but there wasn't a lot that had sort of an overarching idea. So that's what I wanted to try to do. We were looking for that just last year. So (laughs) we will have it on pre-order very soon. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was really great. Yeah. Thanks so much for asking. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.